It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. There's a revolution underway this morning, ladies and gentlemen, whether it is the test and trace revolution, whether it's the revolution going on at the BBC, uh, where they suddenly seem to have worked out they might not be as unbiased as they thought, whether it's the revolution of opening the pubs next month, it's a matter of taking your pick this morning. Matt Hancock has been singing the praises of the new system that will move us out of lockdown faster by concentrating instead on those who are infected rather than those who are not. The question is, will it work and is it financially sustainable? for people who can't work from home but could be told to stay there for two weeks despite not actually being unwell. And in parts of the country where infections are running at all-time lows, is it even necessary? We've just been hearing on the news there that over in New Zealand they haven't had any new cases for five days. We've had a very, very low rate of infection here in London and the southeast in recent times. Uh, we'll be talking to David Wooding coming up to find out what's going on. Uh, we'll kick off uh, this morning with David. Uh, we'll be asking him about yesterday's appearance by Boris Johnson before the Liaison Committee, where MPs once more kept saying they wanted to move on from the Dominic Cummings issue uh, by refusing to stop asking questions about him. Honestly, the story is dead and buried. Even the papers have left it alone by and large this morning, apart from The Guardian. And even Emily Maitlis has proved uh, that the story's more about her than it is about him this morning. She was stood down, of course, last night and admonished by the BBC for her biased attack on the Prime Minister's chief advisor on Tuesday night. 0344 499 1000. As ever, we want to hear from you, though, because you're out there in the real world, the proper front line, not the Westminster bubble. What are you seeing? Uh, What are you hearing? And what are you doing? London seems busier than ever today, and I'm sure the rest of the country seems to be waking up uh, out of its eight-week slumber as well. 0344 499 1000. Coming up on our homeschooling spot today, we'll be learning all about about Pythagoras' theorem. So get your set squares at the ready. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let's kick things off without further ado uh, with the political editor of The Sun on Sunday, Mr David Wooding. David, a very good morning to you. 
Morning, Mike. Well, it's been another rip-roaring week, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, he's never a dull moment in this uh, in this lockdown. We've got all sorts of accusations flying around all over the place. Since the last time you and I spoke, Dominic Cummings' story has dominated the news now, seems to be fading away into the background. Emily Maitlis gets told to not uh, present Newsnight last night, although she's claiming that it was her decision to step, to step aside, uh, albeit a rather late one. Um, what have you made of it all? Well, it, it's fascinating. Um, the, the Dominic Cummings story, you're right, It's uh, we've reached pick... Peak Cummings. It's yes. a bit like those graphs you see on the daily uh, <laughs> on the daily coronavirus briefing. About Sunday, Sunday, uh, Monday, it was at the peak. And if you look at the graph, the coverage in the newspapers, the coverage on TV and radio, and the uh, the public outrage is starting to fizzle out uh, rapidly. Uh, so uh, that, that that one's going away. So um, well, what uh, I found very very amusing yesterday. So I'm going to ask you to, uh, what you what you made of this liaison committee appearance by Boris yesterday, where he was on for quite a long time, answering an awful lot of questions. And he seemed a bit like he couldn't get away from any of it, you know. But a lot of the questioning was quite hilarious, where they were saying things like, you know, you've wasted too much time defending this man. You know, we must move on. We must get on with the business of getting out of the pandemic. And then the reason he's spending all this time defending him is because they keep attacking him. <laughs> yes. I mean, what I noticed about that, I watched the whole uh, the whole um, session, right. uh, 90, 90, 100 minutes of it, um, was I think the journalists, uh, sorry, the, the MPs committed the same uh, sin as many journalists. Instead of asking a straightforward, direct, simple question, mm. they made a speech. Yeah. And in making a speech, all you do is allow the Prime Minister to wriggle his way out of it by answering a load of different points. If you ask a very straightforward, direct question, a sentence with a question mark on mm. the end, he cannot move any other way. Right. And a lot of those just wanted their moment on the TV um, um, having a go at the Prime Minister. That's the problem. Yeah. I think the best thing to come out of that, Mike, was the uh, the line that pubs could open sooner than July. Listen, I could not uh, be happier to, to hear that news. news. for everybody, yeah. I mean, you know, there's going to literally be dancing in the streets uh, and staggering around, no doubt, in the streets as well. Yeah, I mean, so one, one of the things I've noticed... Two meters distance, of course. Well, of Mike. course. Two meters distance. Although, you know, the thing that keeps coming up now, um, and I don't know what your, your your views are on this, but an awful lot of people I talk to in the hospitality business are saying, you know, if they'd only reduce it to one meter, it would make such a difference to those businesses because they can make money with mm-hmm. one meter distancing, but probably not with two. Yes, uh, and the the, um, the 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 big point of this is and the reason that, that that's got so much traction mm. is that in Europe many of the other countries are going for the one meter rule. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's also a fact that. Uh, one metre is enough not to pick up droplets uh, from somebody speaking or exhaling. Right. Uh, two metres, if somebody's going to cough um, without putting their hand up, then you're, you're a bit of risk at two, uh, unless you're two metres away. But one metre for, nor- for most normal uh, purposes is, is good enough, it's particularly outdoors where, where, where we're all being encouraged to go at the moment. Well, exactly right. And certainly, I mean, around uh, the parts of London that I visit from time to time as I'm going backwards and forwards into work, you know, there's a lot of pubs that are now opening up for takeaway booze and people are going to windows, taking a glass of beer away in a plastic cup of some kind and then just sort of walking around and going to, going to sit down and, and, and drink it. So it's not that different from opening up a beer garden, really. No, it's not. And um, the, the, I was seeing in one of the newspapers this morning pictures of these perspex screens that they're, they're talking about putting around people in restaurants right. so that you're, you're sitting facing uh, your, your, your guest or your partner, your husband, wife, your girlfriend, mm. uh, and, and you're... you're 
you've just got this screen around you, like a sort of your own, your yes. own Westminster bubble. If There's you like. a place not far from Tower, Tower Bridge, actually, that's got all that, hasn't it? Do you know, it, it sits right on the north side of the river, and they've got these little sort of uh, globes, glass globes that you sit inside, and it's a table for four or oh, something yes, like that. Oh, yes, I've seen that. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. And I mean, it's, they're quite hard to get, actually, because at the height of wintertime, when it's cold, it's a really quite a nice place to have dinner. But I mean, that kind of idea would be uh, quite innovative, and, and, and people could do it easily outside. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I think the I think the other the other thing is uh, as we move into this next phase, people people are starting to feel a little bit more like normal life. The fear is is is, is diminishing. Yes. People are aware a little bit scared because they bought into stay at home. This is a killer virus. They saw the figures of the numbers of deaths going up. They saw people in intensive care. Now that seems to be uh, receding. There is a little bit more. Um, People got a little bit more um, bold about going outdoors, and I think that's a good thing. Yes, I mean I think to be fair as well, without being critical of the message that was going around, you know, eight weeks ago, it was a bit more dangerous. It did feel a bit more dangerous because there was a lot less known about the disease. There was a lot less known about how it was going to spread, and there was a lot less known, um, you know, about what the actual dangers were. Whereas now we feel as if we know a lot more. I think. Yes, one of the government's problems was that its campaign, its message was so successful mm. that everybody stayed at home to protect the NHS and save lives. They are, even I'm saying it now, mm. um, that they all stayed at home. They all bought into this and they believed that it, there was a serious threat. And then when people started saying, well, you can start going out a little bit, going to work, a lot of people were saying, oh, hang on, I don't want to go out there. It's a bit dangerous. Now people are starting slowly to unlock. And I think that I think the government is, is right to go along with the way that the nation feels. Mm. If, if it, they felt it was too soon to go back, then maybe... It was too soon. Uh, now, slowly, people are going back, providing it's a bit like slamming the brakes on or taking the brakes off and pressing the accelerator mm. too quickly. It's got to be done in a smooth, slow way, because if they do it too quickly, we'll go backwards. And I think people are taking baby steps, as Boris Johnson yes. says. And I think that's, a, and, that's the way forward. And certainly, the Prime Minister seems to be pretty clear that many schools will be opening um, on a Monday and many uh, primary school kids will go back to school. Yes, um, uh, we're, we're expected to get more of that for you on Sunday, but um, it's looking very much like uh, uh, schools will go back in that again in that controlled way, years one and year six. Right. Um, so, what's it, happened it, it, to all the resistance from the teaching unions? Then is that all just faded away? Well, I mean, the, the, all those five tests seem to have been met, yeah. and the, the teaching unions um, uh, now accept, I think, that, that, that they've got to go back. And See, this is where uh, I think they've been very clever, and I think Dominic Cummings is probably key to this kind of strategy. I said this last week. I said what I think is going on here is that the government already has the five things in place. They say and make an announcement that, hey, listen, when we get these five things in place, we'll be able to open the schools. The teaching unions all go mad and say, well, you can't do that. These five things are not in place. But the government knows they already are, and then they now they've got them in place. That wouldn't surprise me in the least. Mm. And let's not forget that the education secretary is Gavin Williamson. Yes. Now, whatever you think of Gavin Williamson, you may have seen him at the at the, uh, the press briefings in Number Ten Downing yeah. Street. He's the man who helped to secure that deal in Northern Ireland when he was Northern yes. Ireland secretary. Uh, he got the Democratic Unionist. Also, as chief whip, um, he did some uh, work in in that area in, during the coalition days and managed to keep um, a. a a government that was on a, a wafer-thin minority, yeah. it was. He kept them 
uh, uh, moving for Theresa May against all the odds. So this man can strike deals. So I think he knows the art of negotiation. Yes, absolutely right. And of course, the big story today as well, uh, which Matt Hancock has been busy uh, talking about, is the whole track and test and trace revolution, uh, as they describe it on some of the front pages this morning. I'm a little bit unsure about um, one part of it, which is that, you know, I totally understand why they want to do it. It's clearly a good idea. Uh, Other countries have had success with it. But it seems to me that if you have been in company or in contact with with the person who is uh, who is infected with COVID-19, but that you're not infected, it seems a bit unfair that you then have to self-isolate for 14 days, doesn't it? It might do, Mike, but I, I, I've weighed this one up myself in the same in the same uh, mindset as you on yeah. this. Um, uh, if we're trying to get people back to work and we're trying to stop the virus, mm. then it's 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 being effectively um, pinpointing where the virus is or where it might be yeah. and limiting the number of people who are locked down. And I think that's probably a little price we have to pay in the short term to mm. to try and allow everybody else to go out to work. It's like the um, the, 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 the the testing um, some people are being tested and finding that they're negative which means they can carry on about with their normal life which yeah. is a great great freeing uh, tool yes um, I did have a, a, a friend who's um, who's uh, a young child who was in a nursery a couple of years old um, had been shown a slight temperature and was sent home and I know that the, that the couple in concerned are going around desperately trying to get a test mm. so that the child can go back to the nursery right. and they can uh, they can go to work so if the testing is available for everybody, then that will free them up and allow the child to go back to nursery. So that's no, that's fine. No, I get all that, but I'm just wondering about the case where somebody isn't actually um, um, COVID positive, um, but yet they still have to stay home. And if they are someone who who can't perhaps work from home, then they're going to be missing out perhaps on money. Mm. I, I, I'm sure. I, I don't know if this has happened yet, but I, I suspect the government will have to uh, deem that they are. Um, deemed as sick mm. so that they can then qualify for the company to pay them sick pay yes. uh, or that they'll have to find some way of getting around that one definitely I'm yeah sure. absolutely right and I guess um uh, the other big sort of bone of contention for the moment as well, and I'm going to be talking about this a bit later on, uh, is the business of quarantine and how that's going to work. Because an awful lot of businesses now, some of them big hotel owners and, and, and other travel companies saying, you know, if you put this 14 day quarantine in for everybody coming back into the country or visiting the country, basically tourism is dead. Yes, we've been told it's, uh, it's only uh, a temporary measure, but we don't know for how long this is going to be temporary. Yeah. Um, again, this is this is a big a big problem for uh, for people if you're going to go on holidays. Um, I was noticing in the Times this morning they they'd done a map of how to drive across Europe to by car right. to avoid aeroplanes. Yeah. But that's a, if that's one problem, uh, the problem of quarantine is is an even bigger one. You know, you take you take your two weeks off. You can't you can't lock yourself down for two years. Now I've heard people in some industries saying, "Oh, I'm going to come back and work from home for two weeks." But not everybody has that luxury. Not everybody's boss will allow them to do that. No, exactly so, right. Uh, also, have you seen the list of the industry. have you seen the list of people who are basically exempt from the quarantine as well? I mean, it's massive. It's really really exhaustive. It's here. here I'll give you a few of them. Road hauling workers, road passenger transport workers, transit passengers, individuals transiting in a country outside of the common travel area, individuals arriving to attend pre-arranged treatments when receiving that treatment in the UK, registered health or care professionals travelling to the UK, people travelling to the UK for the purposes of transporting to a healthcare provider, material which consists of or includes human cells or blood. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Sponsors and essential persons needed for clinical trials, civil aviation,
transportation inspectors, Eurotunnel train drivers, Eurotom inspectors, workers engaged in essential work in related to water supplies. I mean, you know, all you've got to do is get yourself a job with an electric company or water company and you Bob's your uncle. I think you found the loophole there, Mike. I think the... <laughs> that's, by the way, that's only half the people who are exempt. I think the answer is to test people when they arrive at, at the airport. Well, that would be airport. sensible, wouldn't it? It might create a bit of a backlog. I can see why they're a bit reluctant to do that. But if there is some kind of rapid testing, maybe even before they board a plane at the other end or, yes. or, or, or the boat. Well, I mean, we were told, weren't we, that, that, that airlines might actually t- test you before you get on the plane. And so when you're at the airport, you might actually be told, sorry, you can't fly because your temperature's too high. Yes. I mean, if you're on a ferry, for instance, and that's probably how a lot of people will travel, mm. um, what, what's wrong with doing it? Uh, if you're doing a 90-minute crossing over the uh, the channel, you might as well sit there and wait for a test yes. while you're, you're crossing over. It gives you something to do. Instead of drinking eight pints of lager. Right. <laughs> 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 Don't start testing this for that. We'll never get in the country. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly right. And finally, what about Emily Maitlis? Eh? I mean, finally, the BBC's worked out that maybe uh, she's not quite as unbiased as she thinks she is. No. I mean, what fascinates me about this one, Mike, is that the people who are up in arms about Emily Maitlis for breaking the rules of impartial broadcasting on the, on the state, uh, uh, the state TV channel with, for which we all pay whether we like it or not, mm. um, are, are the same people who are calling for Dominic Cummings to resign for breaking the rules uh, of uh, driving his car up to Durham. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, one rule for what them, one rule for the other, they shout, and then they think it should be one rule for Dominic Cummings and another rule for the BBC. <laughs> I mean, the truth is, you know, both of their behaviour was, was suspect um, and... Uh, um, uh, she was wrong to, to state an opinion in that way, and the BBC have indeed said so. Yes. Um, it, but but it, it just shows you how this, this whole debate is, uh, the, the, a lot of the people arguing on this debate, uh, forming their views on whether they voted Brexit or Remain, mm. or whether they like Boris Johnson or they don't. And, and I think you know, we have to we have to think a little bit more grown up about this. Well, I think we do. I mean, a lot of people are telling me that they believe that this kind of attack on Dominic Cummings is coming at a time when, um, you know, the final kind of furlong of Brexit is about to happen. And we're going to hit this deadline in June. Um, and if anything, if anything can be derailed to, to make that more difficult uh, for Boris Johnson, then that's what they're going to try and do. Yeah, and I think the other side of that coin, Mike, is that this is one of the reasons that uh, the Prime Minister wants to keep Dominic Cummings on Mm. because he knows that it's still going to be a slippery uh, pathway to uh, December the 31st and that they'll throw everything at him, not only the EU, but the Remainers in Parliament and uh, and the Remain lobby groups are sending out all sorts of material to try and undermine uh, the process. so he needs him there because he knows that he's so bullish and determined that he will drive it through. So um, uh, I think that's one of the re- one of the main reasons he can't afford to lose him at the moment. Yes, I think you're absolutely right, David. Thanks very much indeed. We should look forward to your paper's publication on Sunday. The Sun on Sunday's political editor, David Wooding, there talking about schools reopening on Monday. He's going to have something for us on that. Uh, we'll be talking more about Emily Maitlis later on in the show. <laughs> Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. You know what to do. 03444991000. Uh, 
1000 Love to know what's going on in your neighbourhood, what's going on uh, where you live. Certainly in London, it seems to me that there's a lot more food outlets opening up. It seems to me that there's an awful lot more pubs opening up, albeit at the moment, uh, to do takeaway service only. Let's talk now, though, to Anthony Brown, uh, MP, Conservative MP for South Cambridgeshire and member of the Treasury Select Committee. Anthony, very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. This is going to be uh, great news for an awful lot of people if we can get back into the beer gardens of this nation and plot and and, and plan and do all sorts of other things that we like to do uh, in public while socially and safely distancing ourselves from each other. Absolutely. No, no one will be keener than me to go <laughs> a part of pub garden in South Cambridgeshire. There's many lovely pub gardens there, but obviously we can only do it when... Uh, we're confident that it will be safe and that the pubs you know, have the right procedures in place to make sure that people are socially distanced. Yeah, I mean, is it going to mean, do you think, that some of the larger pubs will open or pubs with larger areas have outside uh, space, for example? I mean, I was talking to somebody about this a couple of weeks ago. And would it be possible, say, for a, a pub that had a, a big car park to kind of put tables out there? Well, I think all pubs will be making their own uh, arrangements within guidance that's coming from the industry and from uh, and from government. And, uh, you know, pubs do have gardens. Some pubs obviously have gardens, big gardens. Some might have car parks. They might want to use that, as you say. But really, each pub owner will have to do it on a case-by-case basis, but yeah. making sure they're following the guidance when the time is right, because the government hasn't announced this yet, obviously. Uh, what the, the formal government position is that uh, hospitality can start opening up from the 1st of July, but things are going well, so it will be possible. There's lots of people calling for it to uh, be earlier. Yeah, a lot of people that I speak to in the hospitality business, restaurant owners, bar owners, club owners, they often say to me, we can make money at one metre distancing, we can't make money at two metre distancing. What, what would you say to them? Uh, I, I completely understand that, the logistics of it and the, the challenge of two metres for a lot of uh, restaurants in particular and pubs is they just won't get enough customers in there to make it uh, financially worth their while. Right. But, uh, I mean, the, the Prime Minister did say that he's uh, sympathetic to looking at that uh, distancing rule when we get further uh, through the pandemic. Yeah. And as far as this Monday is concerned, the Prime Minister seems pretty clear that there's going to be schools opening. Um, are you expecting any resistance to that from parents or, or from unions or, or has that all kind of gone away? Um, well, there are. I've been talking to a lot of school heads, primary heads, and indeed secondary heads, uh, and they're clear. They are doing all they can to prepare for the opening, but there are clear challenges. Uh, there are uh, the amount of space pe- uh, that they have in schools. They may not be able to get all three classes uh, that are meant to start there. Uh, how do you organise the classrooms? How do you ensure social distancing amongst uh, uh, younger kids? I mean, within the bubbles, uh, you know, making sure you've got the PPE. So the schools are really trying. There's no absolutely no doubt about that. There are clear challenges. I know not all schools are going to be open. Uh, But it's also if parents are worried about their children um, and I should say the government is only doing this uh, or allowing this because we're confident it's safe. We've looked at all the uh, scientific uh, advice and evidence on this Uh, but if parents are worried about their children then at the moment it is not compulsory to send your children in. No, of course. So, I mean, at the moment it's still very much a few classrooms that are going to be open. Uh, Is there a plan to sort of unlock more of them before the summer or is that pretty much going to be it? I think it's, uh, my understanding is that's it before the summer. Uh, I mean, in secondary schools, they're meant to make contact, have some face-to-face time with all 10, uh, year 10 and year uh, 12 uh, mm. children because they've got exams next year. But the, the big reopening will come uh, after the summer, so long as we keep the infection rate down and keep the sort of pandemic uh, uh, pushing down. Yes, and one of the big uh, moves to, to make sure that that happens is the quarantine issue, isn't it? But this morning, uh, more than 80 British tourism chiefs have said, if you bring this 14-day quarantine in for people coming to this country. It will basically kill tourism once and for all. 
Well, this whole lockdown has been incredibly painful for an awful lot of different sectors. We've seen a 30% drop in GDP we're expecting uh, for the second quarter of this year, completely unprecedented. Uh, we've really got to do everything we can to make sure it doesn't come back. Uh, and some sectors will clearly be affected longer than others. We've just been talking about hospitality. Uh, they're not going to reopen clearly before shops that are reopening on uh, uh, June 15th. Mm. Um, and the, certainly the guidance we have is that the risk of infection from certain areas is pretty high. We need clear uh, messaging uh, for when people come into this country about what they need to do. But I know the government's going to keep it under review as the uh, pandemic as the pandemic goes away here but also in other countries yes. and we'll be revising it regularly uh, in terms of who needs to quarantine and who doesn't yeah. when they arrive in the UK but because also we know to... I mean obviously it's, it's you know it's not the most important thing for people to be able to go away on holiday but for certainly many people including myself if I go away on holiday for two weeks and when I come back I have to somehow quarantine myself for another two weeks that's not really going to be workable for most people so they just won't do it well, absolutely. But you can always go on holiday in the UK. If, well, uh, I could do that, yeah. But, I mean, you know, I, I may not wish to do that. I may wish to go to Spain or something like that, you know, where they're breaking them, where they're not going to have quarantine after July. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and I understand that, and I completely understand people want to get away from holiday. But what the government has decided on the basis of the advice it's had is to, to start off with this two-week quarantine, pretty uh, broad brush. There are some exemptions like for lorry drivers and so on, uh, and we'll then keep it under review. So hopefully later in the summer, uh, maybe people will be able to travel. But it really does depend on it. So throughout the whole pandemic, it's been moving constantly, as you know, the government reviewing what lockdown procedures there are on a sort of day-by-day and week-by-week yeah. basis. Yes, no, I, th- I think the government's actually been quite nimble uh, at being able to see something that's not working terribly well and, and make it work better uh, in the same way that they've managed to sort of, I think, more or less cover most people in terms of furloughing uh, and in terms of loans and that kind of thing. So I think that's been a very successful uh, part of what the government's done. Today we're learning, though, about the first day of the test and trace revolution. Um, And I'm sorry to tell you that apparently the government coronavirus contact tracing site has crashed uh, within minutes of launching and it's been described as a complete shambles. They're saying uh, fears that two million people could be ordered to isolate at any one time. Um, I hadn't heard that about this, the site, but, you know, these things do happen. Then you get them up and running again. Um, the, I, I have to say, I, I'm very impressed. On, you mentioned furloughing there. And the, uh, when the furloughing site opened, there was lots of predictions that was going to crash yes. right away. And it didn't. And it, didn't. Right. Uh, it was a huge government IT project delivered in a very short time and without any flaws, which is... Uh, no, listen, uh, I'm, I'm, one of, I'm one of those people, Anthony, yeah. that, that gives credit where it's due. And I think this government yeah. overall has been brilliant. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm very happy to say no, that. Good. And I think those yeah. who continue to nitpick and try and point out that, yeah. you know, this has gone wrong, that's gone wrong. You know, I just think yeah. it's, it's, yeah. it's barking up see, the wrong see, tree. See, see the big picture. This is all unprecedented. You know, we haven't, as a country, been through this before. We're having to learn a lot of things about this uh, virus as we go along. But yes, I mean, the track and trace come back to a point. I mean, this is the next phase of it and uh, will help us, uh, if we get it to work properly, will help us ease the national lockdown. Uh, so rather than having the uh, lockdown of everyone, as it were, we lock down the people who we know have been uh, at risk of uh, infection but yes. because they've been in contact with an infected person. Mm. And um, what about so the... A more, uh, tail- a more tailored, more specific uh, solution. Sure. Do, that does require the public to work with it. Yes. And just finally, um, Anthony, when you do come back from this uh, particular parliamentary recess what are you expecting to find uh, in Westminster are you going to have similar kind of virtual parliaments or, or are you going to have a few more people in the chamber how's that going to work well parliament is uh, reassembling uh, from the 1st of uh, June so next Monday right. uh, and I myself will be going in I'm on the finance bill committee so this is the committee that's uh, uh, 
uh, will scrutinise the actual budget that was a part in uh, Mar- announced in March, uh, and we will. Oh, be- I remember that. That was the last time I was down there. <laughs> it, was <a> long, <laughs> it was a long time ago. This was, you know, before we really knew the pandemic was taking off. Yeah. Um, and uh, but we are now leg- legislating, going through the final bits of it. Uh, we will be doing that physically in a room all sat two metres apart. So a okay. very, very big, very, very big committee room. Uh, the chamber is uh, spaced out as it has been. You can only get, uh, I think it's like 50 or 60 MPs in the chamber at once if they're all two metres away from each other. Mm. Uh, and that's how we'll have to operate. Okay. And there's, there's going to be a new uh, physical voting system uh, where... Uh, there'll be a queue uh, with everyone two metres apart uh, winding its way through Parliament to make right. sure that we're all socially distanced. It'd be like going to Waitrose. Uh, it might be even longer than the queues at supermarkets. It's going to be a very long queue. But they're, they're also looking at uh, uh, what they call super pairing, to pair off as many yes. MPs from different parties as possible so right. that people don't have to uh, queue to vote if they don't need to. And also no. that reduces risk as well. Yes, absolutely. Anthony, thank you very much indeed. Anthony Brown there, a Conservative MP for South Cambridgeshire, member of the Treasury Select Committee, back in business. Uh, not that they've not been working, of course, because the recess has not meant that. Uh, the recess has just meant they haven't been they're sitting in the chamber, which means that Prime Minister's questions will return next Wednesday. We'll bring you that live uh, right here on Talk Radio. We'll also take loads more of your calls coming up 0344 499 1000. And coming next though, the Taxpayers Alliance will be here uh, to tell us about more ripping off of money uh, by the old uh, council- the chancellors and vice chancellors that run the universities and the colleges of this country. They are absolutely coining it in uh, and it's quite ridiculous. This is Talk Radio. Online and on the Talk Radio 1-size-fits-all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Emily Maithless did not present Newsnight last night. Uh, she put out a tweet in which she said that she had asked for the night off. That did go out rather late, however. Uh, last night's uh, a presenter, who actually said that she 
did not fill in for Emily Maitlis on the basis that she was asked to. Uh, she said that Emily Maitlis asked her to do it. Katie Razzle uh, said she would not have agreed to anchor the programme if the decision to remove Emily Maitlis from the show uh, was in any way political. Now, uh, if you've got any sense, you would say to yourself, well, there's a reason why Emily Maitlis didn't do the show. Partly it was because when she holds up the front pages of tomorrow's papers, she's on most of them, and that might have been a bit embarrassing for her to explain. Also, though, I'd have to say, uh, having been in management in media companies, if she had made such a uh, dog's breakfast of that ridiculous rant that she went into on Tuesday night against Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, then you would have probably asked her to stay away and just said, uh, by mutual agreement, it's probably a good idea if you don't do the show tonight. We'll see whether she returns uh, to the show this night. Uh, But let's talk to Tim Luckhurst, who's, of course, uh, Principal of South College at Durham University. Tim, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Nice to be with you. Yeah, thanks uh, for joining us once more. I mean, you're a man that knows a thing or two about the BBC. Um, It's been sort of, I would say, I suppose, since the referendum and even maybe since before the referendum in 2016. You know, the BBC presenters individually have not exactly been shy um, in making it known what they think, have they? Well, that's an interesting way of putting it, because what I would say is that I don't think any BBC presenter on network programme is working as an individual. They're the front of a team. And the idea that Emily Maitlis wrote that rant, and I agree that it was a rant, that she delivered it without her editor, the producer, and others knowing precisely what she was going to say, is, to my mind, absolutely incredible. Mm. The rest of the team knew she was going to say that. And that's where the real problem comes in. Because if that is the culture on the Newsnight team, if everyone from the editor, Esme Wren, all the way down to the presenter, Emily Maitlis, thinks that a calling Dominic Cummings, essentially somebody who has broken the rules, when the central defence that he has made, and the Prime Minister made on his behalf, is that he does not believe he has broken the rules, right. then the Newsnight theme is making a serious mistake. And that was bad journalism. Well, exactly right. But but I guess, Tim, you would, you would uh, attest as much as I would attest, having known many people who work behind the scenes at the BBC. If anything, um, they might even be more inclined to those kinds of beliefs um, and I'm not suggesting they're, they're party political beliefs but they're sort of you know the sort of remain side of an argument beliefs that you know all Tories are evil kind of thing there's a lot of those people who work at the BBC aren't there? Well I'd put it slightly differently Mike what I'd say is something that was said to me when <laughs> I first joined the BBC but it was said in a very very accurate way because it was a warning mm. I was warned when I joined the Today programme that too often the BBC sounded like a lot of people who read The Guardian talking to an audience who they'd forgotten were more likely to read the Daily Mail or Daily Express. Mm. And I should always remember that I was addressing an audience who might not share all of the convictions that the people I'd been at university with or the people who they might have assumed were my friends would have. Now, that was a good warning. In fact, I'm married to a woman who was a Conservative parliamentary candidate and who shares quite a lot of the views which make this government popular amongst Conservative voters. I'm not going to tell you what my personal political views are because I think they're private. But I always remember when I worked for the BBC that there are at least two sides to a political argument and often three. And I think the problem with that Newsnight team that night is that they completely lost sight of the fact that what they regard as the absolute consensus opinion that 
Their dislike of, their concern about Dominic Cummings is not the universal view of the British electorate, and they should always be aware of that. And the BBC was right to say that that introduction was wrong. They need to remind the entire Newsnight team they are Guardian readers speaking to an electorate who don't all read The Guardian, and they should never forget it. Yes. And and bad and, and, and bad news for the people who run Newsnight as well is that the Guardian sales are rapidly uh, declining, uh, as are the viewing figures for Newsnight. I sent a, a, a tweet last night um, to Esme, the, uh, the editor of the show, and I said this. Could you please explain why you allowed last night's monologue to go out, which BBC management has deemed to be in breach of impartiality guidelines? And can you confirm that Emily Maitlis will be back tomorrow? Uh, of course, she hasn't answered that at all, um, because the question is, uh, Tim, if indeed uh, it was in breach of impartiality guidelines, which the BBC deemed it to be, um, then how on earth can these people be editing the show and not know that that was the case? Well, that's a really interesting question. And I think, again, that goes back to the collective mindset. Mm. But let's think about the procedure whereby that rant got onto the auto queue yeah. from which Emily List read it. She didn't simply write that, even if she wrote it herself, and I don't know that. She didn't simply write it and then deliver it. It had to go through an editorial process simply for practical reasons. In order to get that text onto the auto queue, her editor needed to see it, the producer of the show needed to see it. What that means is that all of them saw what was essentially a partisan statement masquerading as fact and treated it as if it was fact. Mm. Now, that really does need careful, thoughtful analysis, and it really does need a serious conversation with the Newsnight team. Now, I know that BBC management, Fran Onsworth, the Director of News and Current Affairs, or a senior member of her team, had that conversation with the Newsnight team yesterday, and the result was that Emily didn't present the programme. She says that was voluntary. I accept her word for it. I'm sure she was very upset. But that's not a sufficient outcome. There has to be a really serious thing about how on earth they could get themselves into a position where they have a team which regards that partisan position as a balanced, objective, consensus position. Because it's nothing of the sort. It is the view of one part of the electorate, one part of the British population. It does not represent everybody. And the BBC is not a newspaper. It's not entitled to take an editorial position. It has to be a balanced, objective broadcaster. And I think that in that particular aspect it failed it's acknowledged that it failed but it needs to recognize that there is something deep-seated which leads to that kind of failure and this is why i'm asking the question whether it turns out emily maitlis may be the trojan horse for those people who would like to see the bbc being much more obviously impartial and also being much more obviously a news organization rather than an entertainment conglomerate which a lot of us feel is has become far too big has become far too unwieldy uh, and is spending the kind of money on things that quite frankly uh, they shouldn't be spending money on well, I'm, I'll say this, Mike. I think the BBC is at its best as a news and current affairs provider. I agree with that. When it is genuine, objective and balanced, when it is neutral about politics, when it considers all of the perspectives, when it seeks to treat one party as being anathema, then it is clearly in the wrong position and it's not serving its audience. I'll also agree with you that news and current affairs should be the thing which absolutely defines the BBC. If it is not good at informing, the Great Ruthian Trilogy was inform, educate and entertain. I think the informing and the education 
take precedence over the entertaining. And I think that the BBC have got to be very good at informing through its news and coverage best output. It is often very good. I think its online material is absolutely superb, for example. I think much of its radio output on Radio 4 is very good. I don't understand why the BBC wants constantly complete compete with the commercial sector for music radio. I don't understand why it can't focus on making high quality drama of the type which really does attract large mm. audiences rather than simply making entertainment. But that's an argument about the size of the corporation and it's a perfectly reasonable argument and what I think is going to take place over the period of the next few years as the BBC's licence and its Royal Charter come up for a year in 2027. Yes, I mean, I would be astonished if the BBC does not change quite dramatically um, in the conversations that, that, that are now had between, say, the government and the BBC and the new Director General, whoever that is going to be. I mean, uh, somebody suggested rather um, sort of wise crackingly that it should be Dominic Cummings, and that would really set the cat amongst the pigeons, but that's, I don't suppose that's going to happen. But, you know, I do feel that uh, BBC is very vulnerable at the moment, and I think this has not helped them whatsoever. But it may lead, as as I say, to, to them sort of self-policing a lot of their other presenters. You know, Gary Lineker, for example, gets away with uh, all sorts of stuff on social media that if he was a news uh, journalist, he would not get away with. However, they turn a blind eye because they see him as one of their sort of megastars and so therefore he can do no wrong. But surely there has to be a proper set of rules and regulations about what these people can say publicly while they're working for an impartial television channel. Well, I mean, you make a point which is, of course, absolutely valid. News presenters, news journalists at the BBC are governed by a very strict set of rules mm. about impartiality. And anything they were to say in public, which was to lead to the impression that they are not, in fact, impartial, would be seen as a grave risk to their employment. I mean, we've, we've seen examples of this in the past, and I'll say with, with great pride that um, there's one who I think has done behaved extremely honorably. I mean, Paul Mason, who once worked at Newsnight, subsequently went on to work at Channel 4, who's an extraordinarily bright man, a very good journalist, acknowledged that his own political views, which he regards as being radically social democratic, others have described him as being more left-wing than that, but that's a matter for Paul to define himself. He said he could no longer happily work in broadcasting because he wanted to be free to express his opinion. Now, I think that's an entirely honourable position to take. For others to stay within the corporation whilst wishing to promote a particular political agenda without candidly acknowledging that that is their objective would always be wrong. I don't think there are many people in the BBC doing it, but if there are any, they should see that it's not compatible. You cannot campaign for one wing of politics and remain an impartial broadcaster, and you must not allow there to be any shadow of doubt hanging over you that you do in fact adopt a partisan position, and that means being very careful in your use of social media. Yeah. Those news correspondents and broadcasters are. Yes, I think if you were to watch the Andrew Marr show on a Sunday morning, which I've more or less given up doing, uh, you would not say that he was without bias. And similarly, uh, Question Time with Fiona Bruce, I find her um, uh, interruptions to uh, people from the Tory party far more frequent than her interruptions to any from the Labour party. And all you have to do, uh, and all you have to do, is look at the uh, election night lineup that they had in the BBC studios. I mean, you could barely that uh, they were barely containing their absolute <laughs> disgust uh, at the landslide victory for Boris Johnson. 
Well, I, there I disagree with you. I think Andrew Marr has demonstrated remarkable independence of mind and objectivity in his broadcast career. And I don't think there is any evidence of partisanship on his part. I recognise that one can go back to his very early career in journalism and say that he worked for titles which were slightly to the left of centre. But I don't think there is any shred of evidence he does that now. And there's a difference between what BBC presenters do and what the guests who appear on their programme do. And I will suggest that it's the case that the BBC should be asking tougher questions of the party in government than it asks of the opposition. That's always been the tradition. It should be holding government to account because government has power. Opposition simply has influence. Therefore, it's proper that journalists in all broadcasters should ask members of the current Conservative majority government, tough questions. But those questions should not show bias. They should not be in any way partisan. And they should be designed to reveal the detail of policy and the nature of policy, not to lambast individuals and to attack them personally. So I'm sorry if that's a long answer, but that's that's what I think. I, I do emphatically disagree with you about, um, yeah. about Andrew. Well, I, I think we'll just have to we'll just have to agree to disagree on that one. But what what would you say to somebody who said, all right, I tell you what, Emily Maitlis, you've now proved yourself to be very biased against um, uh, Boris Johnson and against uh, Dominic Cummings. Therefore, uh, what you can't do anymore is present Newsnight, but what you can do is present your own show, which is called the Emily Maitlis Show, uh, and it's actually a, 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 an opinionated personality-driven television show, which I think people would be quite happy to watch as long as they knew that's what it was. Well, I agree that audiences are capable of making a distinction between balance and personal opinion. But again, I repeat, I'm not remotely convinced that the views which were expressed in Emily Maitlis's introduction to that item on Newsnight mm. were her personal views. I think that, that the real problem is that they appear to have been the collective consensus of the Newsnight team. Mm. And actually, Mike, that's a much bigger problem. Yeah. If that's the mindset in the Newsnight team, then that Newsnight team needs an injection of real balance, real objectivity. And it needs an editorial leader who's prepared to say, this Guardian reading consensus does not represent your viewers or the country you're broadcasting to. You need to take a broader view. You need to bring in a couple of people who've worked for the Daily Mail, perhaps. And I mean that really seriously. Well, as long as he's not Jason Groves, because he's no better than the rest of them. But that's another story. Um, what about the idea that the BBC now is nothing like what it was when it was created, in the sense that, you know, when it was created, there wasn't very much else around. There wasn't really a plethora of uh, all sorts of entertainment companies, of online uh, streams streaming services, you know, so I think you could thin it down to a very large extent, take away, as you say, some of the music radio, um, some of the ridiculous large number of, of local radio stations, some of the TV, they've got 10 TV channels, and an awful lot of people working there, I think it's 23,000 people, and I think they need to slim it down, they need to make it more fit for purpose, and a lot of people in this country are already telling me that they no longer pay the licence fee anyway. Well, you know that I'm a supporter of a universal licence fee. I'm also a passionate believer that Britain's national broadcaster, the BBC, is one of the most iconic brands that this nation owns and that is, is legendary and extremely popular around the world. I think that people in Hong Kong at the moment, for example, terrified by the threat of totalitarian government extending to them from Beijing, are listening to, watching and reading BBC News output, as they so often do, in order to find out what is really going on in their world. So I, I defend the BBC, but I do agree that the BBC is in an entirely new 
circumstances today. The streaming services have taken away much of its audience. Yeah. Sit down, point view TV. This is a different world. So do I think a smaller, more focused BBC could provide the services that the nation and the world wants from the BBC? Yes, but I think that that's a debate which needs to take time and to be done, not because people want to cripple the BBC, because that's the last thing I want to do, because they want a BBC that's genuinely fit for purpose in the 21st century. And that's a big and challenging discussion. I think we need a good BBC. I think we need a powerful BBC. It wouldn't be as large as the BBC is now. And I think that the BBC is actually harming itself by maintaining its scale, rather than cutting services entirely, because they no longer have a role. It's salami slicing everything, mm. which means that it's core services are underfinanced whilst it's continuing to maintain services which it really shouldn't be providing that's a really sensible conversation it's one that i think the bbc should be having internally i wish it were having it much much more in a much more animated and lively way because it's an important conversation yes and I totally agree with that, Tim. And on that point, we shall leave it because uh, we have agreed on it. And I think you're absolutely right. I don't want to destroy the BBC. I just don't think it should be as big. I don't think people should be paid as much money. I don't think it should do so many things. And I think it needs to pull back its horns. And this Emily Maitlis affair may, in fact, start them on the road to doing that. That's Tim Luckhurst, Principal of South College uh, in Durham University, veteran media commentator, former producer of the, uh, Radio 4 uh, and the Today programme, and, of course, newspaper editor as well. The Independent Republic of Mike. Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, it's time for homeschooling. So if you haven't done it yet, get your children and um, get them all wrapped around the radio, wrapped around the television, uh, sit them down. Because we're going to learn about Pythagoras' theorem uh, in the company of Dr. Jamie Frost. Jamie, very good afternoon to you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Mike. Thank you very much indeed. Now, I'm slightly nervous because I haven't looked at Pythagoras' theorem for quite um, a few decades, I think I'd probably have to say, and um, I'm not entirely certain that I remember what it is. <laughs> it's quite funny because I spoke to my dad yesterday and um, he, he hasn't done maths since he was like 16. Right. And I was quite surprised he's forgotten all the rest of maths, but he actually was able to recite Pythagoras' theorem to me, which is quite really? remarkable. That is um, amazing. I'm not how he figured out to use it, but I, I just didn't know the side of my dad that he actually knew Pythagoras. So I was quite impressed by that. Well, he probably went to school at a time when he would talk by rote all of this stuff, you know, which I kind of did as well. But I mean, my son, uh, who was due to do his GCSEs uh, this year, I mean, some of the maths that he puts forward uh, uh, to me, I just can't even see. I just don't get it. I mean, you know, we, we, he's got a maths tutor because it's so complicated now. Um, I remember doing logarithms. I remember doing algebra. I remember doing geometry. Um, you know, but it was a very long time ago, and I don't really. It's not. I mean, I'm, I've always been okay at doing maths, maths in my head and that kind of thing. Um, but but it's not very sure. complicated. Sure. Um, well, I always think it's it's good to start um, when you learn a new mathematical concept, like where it's used. Yes. So Pythagoras is simply how we can relate the three sides of a right angle triangle. Right. And just in case your listeners aren't familiar with the idea of a right angle triangle, a right angle is just when you have, like, say, the corner of a table, a 90 degree angle. Yeah. So if I was to, say, draw a line from one corner of the, my table to the other, that would split it into uh, two right angle triangles. Um, and that line you've drawn across the table that would be uh, the longest side of each triangle. That would be uh, the hypotenuse. Yes. Well, I've just drawn a right-angled triangle. Does it matter which way I draw it? Because I could draw a right-angled no, triangle not. in various... I could draw another one there. That's a different one. And I can draw this one over no, here. Pythagoras will, 
Yeah, go. Pythagoras' theorem will work however you draw your right angle triangle. As long as it has a right angle in it, yeah. then Pythagoras' theorem is going to work. Best. Yes, and I can yeah. I can remember now, as it's all coming flooding back to me, that the, the right angle triangle <laughs> has a 90 degree angle, doesn't it? So I put that there as a little square, 90 degrees. Yep. Um, and it, it's used in, in various places in real life. So, for example, um, this is kind of a convoluted scenario, but like, imagine your, your cat is stuck up the top of the tree and you've got to put a ladder up to the tree. Uh, well, the ladder and the floor and the tree would kind of form a right angle triangle. Right. So if you say you knew the, length of the ladder, and we'll, we'll do an example like this in a second, if you know the length of the ladder and you know the height of the tree, then you could work out the third side of that right angle triangle, like how far you have to put the bottom of the ladder yes. um, from the bottom of the tree. Oh, okay. Um, so that's um, and, and there's other scenarios. Like I'm I'm about to do some building work in my house, um, and ask the architect to send me the 3D model so I could do some playing. Uh, and you know when you hear like, oh, I've got a 50 inch screen TV. Yeah. That's actually the diagonal of the screen. It's right. not the sort of horizontal width. And because like widescreen is like in the ratio 16 to nine, if you've seen that before, you could actually work out what the width of the TV is by using that ratio and using the diagonal of the screen. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Or even like, yeah, and even I was on my way to work and I was thinking, well, okay, I've got to cross the road. But what if I sort of, rather than cross directly and then sort of turn left to go on my way to school, what if I, it was safe to cross the road, what if I just cut across at 45 degrees? Mm. Uh, how much time would that save? Um, and it turns out to be um, 29% uh, time saving. <laughs> Obviously a very small time saving, but um, if you're a busy person, 29% yeah, uh, time saving cross does, does help. Every um, little helps. Also, and, um, I mean, it's also great to be able to work those kinds of things out because it keeps, I mean, we talk a lot about keeping your mind kind of alert. It's a good way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just to say about the history, I'm not going to bore you, but the history of Pythagoras, it, it wasn't actually Pythagoras who who discovered it. it was actually the Babylonians over a thousand years before that. And there's actually tablets, which I think is somewhere in America from the Babylonian era, era where they actually, um, you can see that they understood um, some stuff about Pythagoras theorem, even though it wasn't right. named yet. So when, so when cool. Pythagoras discovered it or decided to, to come up with the theory uh, or the theorem, which would, which would now last all, all of these years later, centuries later, I mean, what was, what yeah. was the use of it to him? Um, I, I can't remember the exact context he'd, he'd use it, but to be honest, it, it comes everywhere in maths. Like if you want to find the distance between two longitude latitude points, you yeah. need to use Pythagoras. Um, and like, for example, when you do mechanics, like looking at movement and stuff, mm. um, like there's people who do GCC physics will know the un there's a difference between like velocity and speed, where like the speed of a car like might be, I don't know, 50 miles per hour, but the velocity also takes into account its direction. And Pythagoras would allow you to sort of convert between uh, those two forms so right. it's used everywhere and Pythagoras would have used it in a, a variety of different cases he did a lot of stuff to do with geometry so I'm undoubtedly he would have used a lot of Pythagoras yes um, which is well, not surprising he is Pythagoras so you'd expect him to use Pythagoras <laughs> yes and and who, what sort of a guy was Pythagoras do we know much about him uh, he was also I'm, I'm, I'm not a historian but uh, he was also a philosopher as well so uh, and the philosopher did a lot in terms of philosophy of mathematics so mm. he's a sort of a free thinker as well as a as a mathematician right uh, sounds like a great guy to well, I mean, fascinating. Uh, all of these kind of characters, to me, are, are fascinating. Like Archimedes and his bath and the fact that he travelled from Greece to Sicily and, and kind of hung out over there. It's quite amazing that these these people kind of invented these ideas because it's a great thing to yeah. invent an idea and to have your name all over it for the rest of time. I mean, you know, it must be fantastic. Oh, absolutely, yeah. 
Right. Um, so, so what got are we going to do? Here. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've got this cat example. Are you able to see me, by the way? I can see you. Yeah. So I've got this example here, and we've got the cat up at the top of the tree, and we've got this triangle, triangle, and we've got the distance of my ladder from the bottom of the tree is three meters. Yeah. And the height of the tree is four meters. Right. And I want to work out the length of that ladder, which you can see that's the longest side of this triangle, triangle. That's the hypotenuse. We yes. Call it. Okay. Um, we need to work out that length of the ladder. Mm. Um, now you can see I've written this uh, theorem here. We've got a squared plus b squared is equal to c squared. Sorry, yeah. it's kind of folding over there. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll and just what copy that basically that down. means. Yeah. And I'll explain it. Don't worry. Go on. Um, so it basically means that if you take uh, each of the shorter sides of the triangle yes. and you square them, so the shorter sides are A and B, the shorter, sorry, it's hard to point when it's in reverse, um, the shorter sides are A and B of this triangle. Now, if you were to square each of them and then add them together, that's going to give you the longest side squared right. of the triangle. And is the longest side yeah. always the, horizontal, the, the, the diagonal? Is that always the longest? Uh, yeah, well, it depends how you draw it. As you said, you could draw it in any angle. But the, the, the longest side is always opposite the right angle. That's a really easy way to identify it. Oh, right, so okay. I, I can see the, triangle there. the one that's opposite your right angle. That's the hypotenuse, the longest side. So that's so, going yeah. to be the C. Okay. Yeah? Yeah, got it. That's C. Okay. So we need to now use these sides we've got. We can see the shorter sides, the A and the B, we've got three and we've got four there. Yeah. You can see that? Yes. Um, and we've now got to work out this final side. Um, this is the C here. Yeah. Right. So if we plug these sides into the formula, let's say the A, one of the shorter sides is three. Yeah. And the B, the other shorter side of my triangle, that's the height of the tree is four. Yeah. If you so, put that's, that into formula, so that's nine plus 16, right? Because it's, but it's squared. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So if you do nine plus 16, what do you get? I get 25. Yeah. So the 25 must be equal to that C squared you've got on the other side of the formula. Yes. So the hypotenuse is 25. I know, C squared. The hypotenuse squared is 25. So therefore, if the hypotenuse oh, squared sorry, yeah. is 25, then what is the hypotenuse? Oh, so it's 5, isn't it? It is, yeah, because 5 squared is 25. Yeah. And that means, well done, you've successfully worked out that the length of the ladder, that hypotenuse of the triangle, is uh, 5 metres. Right. Now, I haven't got a ladder that's five metres. What do I do now? Do I have to go and buy one? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but popped out to B&Q and say, listen, I need a hypotenuse ladder, which is five metres long. <laughs> Excellent. That's right. Well, that was, very, well, that was very yeah. well explained, Jamie, I must say, because one of the things that, that I think everybody remembers from their time at school uh, is the, the teachers that were somehow able to communicate better than the ones who couldn't were the, the subjects that you remembered the best and the subjects that you learned the most mm. from, you know? And you've got a very um, very nice manner about you. I don't wish to, I'm not trying to be patronising, but you've got a very good very teaching manner. And you do an online learning platform, right, um, called drfrostmaths.com? That's right, yeah. And it's, it's since the lockdown, it's got incredibly busy. It's mm. about 1.2 hits a day. Wow. Um, and I've got the move server and everything just to kind of um, accommodate the demand. It's, it's, it's been absolutely crazy. Yes, brilliant. Well, listen, thank you so much for, for taking the time to do that. Uh, it's, it's, it's brought back a few memories of my uh, Catholic grammar school, which was run by monks 
and uh, brothers of some kind, which was, uh, you know, sometimes good and sometimes not so good. But thank you very much indeed, Dr. Jamie Frost, maths teacher, finalist for the Global Teacher Prize 2020. Get my vote for sure. And I'm going to give myself a mark here, as is what you do as you're a teacher. Uh, I've given myself 10 out of 10. Thank you very much indeed. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.